1: If you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American Dash dot com Slash Mike to get twenty percent off your first order. That's American giantcom dot com Slash Mike.
2: This is a podcast from Minute Media.
3: It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Sunday, February the 27th, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com and of course support the good folks over at the Fan Sided Podcasting Network and our good friends over at risingapple.com. Well, welcome into another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Sunday morning. I come to you early here on Sunday, and at, what is it, day number eighty-eight of no major league baseball, major league baseball on lockout. And we talked a lot about that last week with our good friend who was uh, consulting with the Players Association, Joe Casal. And I'll get to that in a minute, but boy, was Joe on the money as you see these talks unfold. And I know as I come to you here on a Sunday morning, things could change a lot in the next 24 to 48 hours. But boy, they do not look promising. And I don't have much more to say on that. I think I've talked a lot about it, but uh, I'll I'll get to that in a minute. Special guest, I do want to bring you some baseball and some good news. I don't want this to turn into the uh, collective bargaining edition of the Talking Mets from now until, well, whenever this thing ends. Steve Traxel, former uh, Mets pitcher, pitched for them back uh, in the early 2000s. Pitched a couple of one-hitters. I mean, interesting career, 140-plus wins, 16 years in the big leagues. I know his career ended somewhat with a fizzle as he struggled down the stretch in 2006 and did not pitch well in the postseason, but he was part of that 2006, that special division-winning Mets team that I know a lot of fans still hold very special memories in their hearts, even though it ended with such disappointment in Game 7 against the Cardinals in the NLCS. So Steve Trax will be joining me in just a few minutes, I had a chance to catch up with them. And quite honestly, as we get into the present and talk about the game, I mean, we all knew this lockout. And I said, I told you this was going to be more like Valentine's Day. And guess what, guys? I was wrong. We're we're staring down the barrel of St. Patrick's Day. And for those who celebrate, it might be Easter. And if you listen to our friend in last week's show, and if you haven't, you really should, Joe Casal, Joe, former agent, very familiar with labor negotiations in multiple sports, a uh, consultant, really uh, got in the weeds with what's going on now with these negotiations and the players' association. So he's not just talking from a speculative perspective. This guy knows. And the main issue, and it still is the main issue, and it could be an issue that we're both reading about, and essentially both sides will be standing and staring each other down for a long while is the competitive balance tax, which is uh, essentially a tax that limits the spending of big market teams. And is a de facto salary cap. And it has really always been, but I think with the increased penalties and the lack of adjusting for inflation and some of the things that are going on with players' salaries, it's become, and, and if draft picks are involved in this, pretty much a hard cap. Even for someone like Steve Cohen and, and in a lot of ways, Steve Cohen has been the igniter, not not that anybody said that, an igniter with his spending this past off season. And I know there was a bunch of of owners that not many, but a bunch of owners that tried to block him from buying the team, which is absurd. About it. I mean how here you have a New York club struggling financially for a long time, owners that are are bleeding and drowning, that just gotta unload it because of all the issues financially that they had from Madoff and then the, the pandemic basically threw them overboard. And you have a great owner coming in trying to save a big market franchise and put them into another level of relevance, and they're trying to stop it. So he, he's been kind of that, that, that uh, igniter, if, if you want to call it that. And what we heard last week, and if you don't believe that now, you know, just read Evan Drylick over at the Athletic, Ken Rosenthal, Jeff Passan, anybody, and the media to me hasn't really done a good job with this because they're doing a lot of uh, ownership mouthpiece reporting. The players all along, and I've always been one of these guys that that I've never been like one side or the other, but I also, but I've understood and I still understand the owner's plight. I've seen David Samson. Not a big fan of David Samson. I mean, the guy's father-in-law, Jeffrey Loria, was part of that whole. Seal a gulag over there that was buying teams and tanking teams there in Montreal and moving from one to the other and became fabulously wealthier than he was, thanks to baseball and really never invested in the Miami Marlins. But because just because a, a club is is worth three billion dollars or two billion dollars or one billion dollars. I mean, that's like saying my house is worth a million dollars. That doesn't mean you you have a million dollar lifestyle. You could have bought it when it was worth a hundred thousand dollars. And doesn't mean you have that cash flow. Now, in theory, if you have that kind of house, you have some sort of cash. But all the other expenses that go into running that house, that's where people get underwater and sometimes they foreclose on a home. Now, that analogy may be not totally synonymous about baseball owners, but let's put it this way. Even our friend Joe last week said there's a lot of owners highly leveraged. I mean, part of what the issue with the Wilpons was – was that they were using a lot of debt to, to keep the club. And just like charging up those credit cards or taking loans out, eventually the bills are due and the interest piles up and the payments, I mean, yeah, they're flat, but when you're paying all those debt payments, you know, you, you really don't have money to run your day-in-and-day expenses. Think about like in a home. You take all these loans out to improve the home potentially, and you have this beautiful home and, and it's worth all this money, but... You Don't have enough money to put fuel in the car or to buy food or to get clothes, or God forbid the one thing goes wrong with the the plumbing. you're like,, oh, I, you know, I, I I don't have the cash. So in a lot of ways, I understand, and Samson was not making the point like I made it, but he was talking about it in relation to the balance sheet that you see for the brave because they're a publicly traded company is you know that owns them. Uh, I understand that, but if a two hundred and fifty million dollar payroll in a sport that is reporting, North of 10 billion in revenue and teams getting so much revenue from cable, so much revenue from, um, you know, just the fact that there's all this interest around the club, uh, all these clubs and Internet and and merchandise and and fans wanting this product. I know attendance is always a a difficult thing in certain markets, but wanting this product, cable, all this stuff, and – you really can't fund, and, and this is where I've always, I've always kind of been agnostic, and I've tried to understand the owner's side. But, and I, look, Joe made the statement: every owner should be able to afford 150 million dollar payroll. And if that's the case, you shouldn't worry about Steve Cohen spending 250 to 300 million. There's going to be a limit with Steve Cohen too. He doesn't want to pay the even the old competitive balance tax. He's not going to want to pay that every year, whether it's 30 percent, 40 percent, 60 percent. I'm not going to get into the deep numbers. You don't care. You should be able to compete. And all I keep hearing is how smart these clubs are and how smart these front offices are. Well, yeah, it's hard to be the Tampa Bay Rays and win every year when you're going with that value equation, but they've done a darn good job. And if you can't add another 50 to 100 million of payroll to kind of sustain something like that, along with your value shopping at a high level that you do from a baseball point of view, then you know there's something wrong i mean maybe that's not a good market for a baseball team i mean i know that and i'm not an expert on any of this stuff i'm not a financial economics expert but i see the nfl and the nba in markets you know the nba's in markets like oklahoma city and i know new orleans is not a great market for the nba but they're there uh and they they thrive and succeed i mean look i understand the nba's had team shuffle the nfl's had team shuffle, and maybe that's part of it. Look, if you if a market's not working, and it's much more complicated than just packing your tent and going home, but if it's not working, get out. If Tampa's not working, get out. The idea that you need to have some kind of like, and I think it was Sternberg, Stu Sternberg, who said, you know, you need to have like a dual city set up to make money. I mean, come on. What are you, a, a traveling barnstorm team? This is professional baseball. You don't know by now. You're not paying attention. The players have the resolve. And they and, and I wasn't sure. This is where at the beginning I was. The reason I didn't think it would last past Valentine's Day is I did not believe the players had the resolve to lose a paycheck. But we heard it from Joe last week. They have that. And, you know, you can make the argument it's the Boris pe- people. It's the, the rich clients. Those free agents that are out there that are going to definitely at least get their salary pinched for a year. That's That's happening. Anybody who's a free agent who did not sign by that December third deadline, their 2022 salary is not going to reflect their market value. Maybe a handful of guys, but even that, there's going to be a lot of teams saying, "Hey, I got to, I, I got to think about my," because you got to make a lot of decisions, and I'm sure they're planning and prepping. But they're, you know, you got to make a lot of decisions in a short period of time, and I think those guys are going to get pinched. So you know, maybe some of those guys are upset, but the vast majority, if not. A large majority of players are, are resolved to, to fight back. And it's about competition. Yeah, it's about money. They know that competition leads to more money for the owners, more money for them, and a better game. And look, we're all in this to get paid. No one's working for free. And if the pie, I say this all the time, if the pie is X, it should be divvied up. You don't like how big the pie is? Stop spending the money. It's a very See, the thing about capitalism in, in this country, it's very easy to stop something. Defund it. You know how you defund it? You don't. And when I say no cable, no merchandise, no games, everything. Don't click on MLB.com. Everything. And nobody does it. Because it's hard because you love this game. You're cutting your nose to spite your face. But if it really bothers you, that's how you get it. And if enough people do it. And the fact that the owners don't believe that that could happen, that's scary because every business – and, and some of you in this audience may own your own business. You may be working for a small business or a big business or a big company. Every company, large, small, can never wake up at any given moment and think, ah, they'll never leave the customers. They'll leave. may not happen overnight. It may drip, but it could happen in some places overnight. And in some markets, I believe, a delay of the season, even for a week to two weeks, which is not the end of the world when you look at the baseball schedule. Because by 4th of July, we'll forget this. Especially when you're getting into the nitty gritty of the postseason. And the stretch drive. But it's going to hurt. Competition is now considered something that we have to negotiate into a collective bargaining agreement. I look at, 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 at Buster Olney's tweet. He writes, a lot of club staffers and agents strongly believe a draft lottery will only have a slight impact on MLB's tanking problem. What is really needed, they believe, is a more direct mechanism to compel teams to spend on payroll rather than pocketing the money and accepting the losing. Stop showing up in those cities. I mean, we its it's absurd. Look, I know owners want to make money, and there's a lot of expenses on teams. But at some point, the only reason that club is worth a billion dollars or two or three is because of the product. It's not worth it because of, of an empty stadium. All that is is a lot of, of, of open-air metal if there's no ball club. If they take away all these great players and put guys like me out on the field to play Sunday softball, it ain't worth a billion dollars. It's really a statement on our society where we've come so numb to what actually – is the mechanism to why people spend money. I mean, we we're so looking at spreadsheets and numbers that we're like at a point where common sense, I mean, we need a director of common sense in every industry. I don't think there's a quick fix or solution. That's the problem. The, the players are hundred percent right to push back. They don't want to go into a collective bargaining agreement, even for a short span of time with more draconian, de facto salary cap measures that are going to limit their pay. They know they'll never, they'll never go be able to battle it back. This is their moment. And they're not going to get everything they want. And there's always going to be limits by the owners. They're always going to try to to block and tackle, which is a shame because it's not a partnership. And the NBA, look, one positive note is that the NBA was at this kind of impasse. And I know that's the word that Joe said you got to be careful using because legally that's a national labor relations board. But in a lot of ways, they're, they're at a point where neither side is willing to go forward, the owners mainly, until the players are, are crushed when it comes to their request on a higher salary, a higher payroll point for the competitive balance tax. I mean, there's so many more issues, but that's the main one. And the NBA was like the NBA had a, like a 50 game schedule back in 2011. It looked really bad. The players and and David Stern. That was his last labor negotiation, if I if I remember correctly. Things were not good, and uh, and they wound up finding a way to make it happen. They lost some time. Uh, the the season happened, and and people moved on, but. That is a different time. That's pre-pandemic, and I, and I think the world was economically in a different place, so it's really, really dangerous right now what they're doing, that they're not sitting – and hopefully, and I think this is very uh, hopeful and naive of me to even say this, but hopefully the next 48 hours, and by the time you listen to this, there's a lot more good news than bad because right now there ain't going to be a start of the season. And what does that mean for us here at this show? <sighs> Means I got to get really creative because the the last thing you want is a is a business podcast that's called talking Mets. From a Mets fan perspective, this is all bad. I mean, the good feeling about the new regime, the big signings, what's next, on hold. But the, that feeling's going to fade fast. There's a real possibility that Mets fans finally got an owner that could spend and spend big, and he's going to be neutered completely. So. <laughs> they better they better invest in a smart front office because it's possible that his money will be neutralized uh, any day now, any minute now. But what really is frustrating if you're a Mets fan is that for years the Yankees abused the system, the Dodgers, it was fine. I know it bothered owners, but it seems like, well, the Mets, now that's going a to bridge too far. They could accept the Red Sox, they could accept the Dodgers, they could accept the Yankees. It's almost like when it got to four and maybe that fourth one was even bigger than any of the other three, that's when they said, no mas, no more. Now, I don't think that it was a Mets thing, but it's almost like Murphy's Law in that sense. And look, this was a precursor when they didn't want to vote Cohen in, and that was even before the, uh, you know, that was after the pandemic, but that was, you know, all before this stuff. You knew that things were going to get ugly. You saw ugly. I mean, they nearly bounced the 2020 season, which in a lot of ways... Looking back, how absurd! After looking at where the world has transpired after two years, what 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 was done to have a 2020 season is just borderline absurd. It's embarrassing. I think going down that season will go down as one of the more embarrassing moments in in baseball history. I think that whole sports landscape is embarrassing. Uh, not their fault. A whole the story, but um, it's frustrating. I know as a Mets fan, you're probably frustrated. So, how can we alleviate that frustration? Well, let's go into the capsule. Let's go into the Mets archive. Let's bring in a former Met, a Mets alumni. When we come back, Steve Traxel, 140-plus wins in his career, a couple of one-hitters as a Met, part of the division-winning 2006 Mets. Great stories. And you know what? That's a long career, 16 years and 140-plus wins. That's a solid career. And I think when you hear Steve talk, and I talk to him, what he brings to the table, the kind of game he brought to the table, has a lot of value in today's game. Not sexy, not headline stuff. But a lot of value. You'll hear about that and more right after this.
1: Oh, and two to Ugla.
4: to third. Nice easy hop for Wrights, and another one, two, three inning for Steve Traxel. He has one hit the Marlins over the first six innings, and the Mets have a three nothing lead.
3: We're back, and joining me. Former Met, former big league pitcher, 16 years in the big leagues. That's a tremendous amount of time in the big leagues. Geez, when you look back, over 140 wins, Steve Traxel and Steve, welcome to the program. And, And here's back in the day, and I'm not that old, but I used to collect baseball cards. The old saying was looking at the back of the baseball card. Now it's the front of the baseball reference page. And I look at the front of the baseball reference page, you're a valuable commodity. You did 200 innings pretty much on average, you know, in, in, in your prime. Six innings, three runs, won 12 to 15 ball games. Now, you didn't strike out a ton of guys, but you handed it over to the bullpen where, you know, you'd win it 7, 8, ninth inning. And I go to last year, and I think only four or five guys did 200 innings. So you'd be top five in innings in today's game. That's an impressive career. And I think when we go to these baseball reference page or the back of the baseball card, uh, I hope that you look back and you say, hey, you know, that's pretty – pretty good stuff thanks mike thanks for
2: having me on here um you know it's uh it wasn't something that was i really thought about while playing it was more something that was expected you know um you know that was the norm i mean when i first got to the big leagues a quality start was seven innings and three runs now it's six then it went to six innings and three runs and now i think it's six innings and four runs and uh you know I had a long conversation when, with Jim Rogelman, uh, probably his first year coming in with the Cubs manager. And, you know, he was saying, Hey, you know, I expect you to be out there every five days. I got you penciled in. And I said, penciled in, he said, write that in ink. It's like, I'm I'm not missing starts. It's not, it's, I don't do that. So, uh, you know, if I go out there and I can't, if I can't pitch, something is going to be seriously, seriously wrong. And, uh, I mean, that's just how it was coming up through the minor leagues. You know, you watch watch Greg Maddox doing that for years for the Cubs and that was who everyone wanted us to be modeled after in the coming up. And uh you know, I watched Nolan Ryan do it and Tom Seaver do it and and uh it's just the way that um I came up watching the game and, and learned to play it and tried to do it.
3: Do you think some of the resources that would been that today they have if you had it, would it have helped? Now, they probably would be watching your innings. They'd be watching your pitch count. And, you know, I've talked to a number of people. I think the video, you know, when you got hitters watching video on the on-deck circle in between pitching changes, I think that's a bit much. And I'm not a former big leaguer, but I've talked to a couple of you guys. You are know, like, that's kind of weird that you got to zone in. But I think there's a lot that that you can take away. Um, I think you might have been able to look behind your numbers. The, you know, you lose 18 games, you're a free agent. A lot of teams might look at you differently because of the innings that you gave, or some of the other things you did, or your spin right. rate. Do you think that stuff would have helped you a little bit?
2: Um, we we had a lot of it, nowhere near to the extent that we had it now. Um, we had it's more through books. We didn't have the computers at the time, and we have to go through page by page the hitters. So you'd be a three ring binder, and I basically you'd take it apart, kind of figure out who you thought the lineup you'd be facing the next day. And you could go through They We had their hot spots, their cold spots, uh, you know, what they liked, you know, two and oh, three and one or, you know, how well they did against breaking balls and all that type of stuff. So you kind of went through that way and created your own little chess match. Um, by the time I got to New York, the computers kind of took over and that made it much easier because you could really factor and zoom everything in. Um, I could get in there and say, all right, we got who we got. Does Scott roll tomorrow? The Phillies. I want to see every 2-0 pitch with a runner in scoring position that he's looked at over the past two and a half weeks by a pitcher who doesn't throw over 93 and doesn't throw a slider, which is somebody like me. And it would zoom it down into a couple minutes, a couple of video that I could watch. It would give me the percentages. You know, we had percentages on guys that would swing 90% of the time, three and one, no matter what you threw them with a runner in scoring position. So, and you, so you knew that out there that like you didn't have to, you know, come up with your nastiest pitch. You could throw some doo-doo up there and they were going to swing at the rosin bag. Right. And, um, you know, just now, I think a little bit of it's overkill, you know, um, Bobby Valentine had more info and stats than anybody had ever met coming up to that point. And, and he would love it. You would ask him a question about something happened in the game and he could give you 11 different answers when you were expecting or hoping to get maybe one. And, uh, Now it's probably a little bit too much overkill on that. And it's, I don't know, I think you get too much in your head. So its I think every guy's got to be different and figure out what does work or what doesn't.
3: Steve Traxel, former big league pitcher, former Met, joining me. Uh, Talk about pressure. You mentioned Greg Maddox. I think it was Ryan Sandberg I read compared you like a Maddox Jr. when you came up with uh, Chicago. So here you are, your top prospect with the Cubs. You come up. And they're comparing you to a future hall of famer a guy that was in Atlanta by that time. That's pretty cool. But geez, and you mentioned Maddox. I mean, what better guy to model looking back. And I was just recently listening to him on, on serious, I think, or, mm. or another show. And he t- he's a very smart guy. And he took pitching down to a very simple level, a uh, very complex trade. And I'm listening to Maddox talk and I'm like, he's making it seem so simple. Now it's hard and right. nobody can locate like he did, but uh, it sounds like you had a lot of uh, throughout the system with the Cubs. That was the model they tried to, you know, breed you with. I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, we had we had a number of guys. Myself, Frank Castillo, Jim Bollinger. None of us were throwing, you know, upper mid nineties. A lot of those guys really didn't exist back then, so we were all control location type guys. And uh, yeah, to bring it back, like taking his spot. That was like one of the first or second questions I got in Chicago from the press was, "Hey, congratulations to the big leagues. You're taking over for Greg Maddox." And I'm like, I'm 22 years old, <laughs> Right. you know, wet behind the ears. Going, uh, you mean the guy that just won Cy Young again and left, you know, and the whole city is really upset and pissed off. So uh, don't. Thanks for putting a little bit of pressure on me, but uh, yeah, he really did simplify in his mind, you know, the, the pitching and execution. He didn't. He didn't care what if you knew what pitch was coming. If I'm going to throw it where I want to throw it, you're still not going to be able to do anything with it. And uh, unfortunately it took me a few years to really get that in my head, that that's actually something that does work. And it and it changed my career when I was able to,
3: to, to get that going. You never really struck out a lot of guys, but it did, you know, you had years where maybe you only struck out four or five per nine, which by today's standards, they would have you pegged as well. Double a. Lucky, you know, well, lucky, you know, that's the new thing. Luck because the random randomness, but you know, some of those years were your best years so you were just looking to throw strikes and and you know go back to the old Ray Miller work fast throw strikes change speeds. I know you were more a deliberate guy and that yeah, was maybe a conversation. That's the work to... fast part. <laughs> they work fast part. So they call you now. Does it bother you the whole human rain delay thing? I mean, I know that Cliff Floyd, your former teammate, says I don't like facing him because he's he's too damn slow. I think he was some of the quote you heard him say. But um, right. you know, it went against some of the tenants. But by today's standards, nobody really cares. They talk about pace of play. You were ahead of the curve maybe on all that
2: little bit. Yeah. I mean, in fact, my pitching style for the most part was I wanted to get the hitter out in four pitches or less. And if I could do it on the first two pitches, great. And uh, I didn't care about the strikeouts. You know, you're getting paid for wins and innings and and giving your team an opportunity to win. Um, I don't care if you go out there and you go five and 12 on the year and you strike out 250 guys and go five innings. It's like, who cares? That doesn't help anybody out. Um, As far as the, the, my pace, it wasn't something that was conscious at the time. Um, I don't know if I really ever embraced it until probably I was done and I actually started watching some of my old tapes <laughs> and saw how unbearably bad it was. Um, you know, it was something. At least we, you're like, honest. At least you're not, honest. You're well, dude, That's we, that's we, good we, self-awareness. Really, yeah. We, well, we really tried to address it. In my first couple of years in New York, I remember Charlie Huff, you know, we would have him with a, with a stopwatch during spring training games and say, Hey, you know, You know, where were the spots? And we basically narrowed it down where I was really good until somebody got on base. And for some uh, weird reason, everything in my head would just, even though it felt like it was going a million miles an hour, it would just completely slow down. So, uh, I mean, if I could go seven innings with only one or two guys on base, you know, we're looking at a sub two hour, 45 minute game probably. I mean, I got baseballs in my office here where I got them two hours and 18 minutes, complete game (laughs) stuff. So, So they did happen. Just, uh, unfortunately, I didn't go that many games out keeping too many guys off
3: base. Well, you, you know, there's the movie Almost Famous. You almost had three no-hitters. I think you know that. You almost had three no-hitters. You even went into the seventh inning in a uh, game 163. And I, I was looking back, so I remember the x I think it was David Eckstein with, the, with yep. the one hit in Anaheim. Very good offensive team. A year that the, was a bad Mets team. Was it, you guys were, were struggling that year. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that same year, the, a pitcher, a little, you know, unknown pitcher in Colorado broke up. What was it, the sixth or seventh inning? And yes, that's a good offensive. Hustle. Yeah, that's almost. And then you have in 96, you pitch a one-hitter. And I think the first batter of the game in Chicago gets hit. So you didn't that get the to the pitch. ninth inning. Did you, I mean, are you conscious in any of those games? Like, obviously, the Chicago game it was the first batter, so throw that one out. But in the Anaheim or Colorado game with the Mets, were you conscious of it? Did something change how you pitch like what do you remember at all if anything about those uh, um, No,
2: I, I, I absolutely was conscious of it um the Colorado one yeah his pitcher was up I fell behind 2-0 and so obviously a mental lapse or something and I was like you know what I, I don't remember the pitcher but he obviously wasn't a very supposed to be a very good hitting pitcher so I said all right I'm going to challenge him 2-0 and uh yeah he hit it over Timo's head and center I mean he hit it great so unfortunately that was it um, the one in Anaheim, it was kind of a lot of stuff going on that game. It was Father's Day, and I'm from Orange County, so I had my, my father and all my family was, was at that game, so that was pretty pretty cool. And uh, Jeremy Burnett's, I think, had hit two or three home runs that game, and then they drilled him. And uh, so, I, you know, you kind of get that look when he comes in the dugout. I'm like, hey, you know, do we need to do something? And Jeremy's like, no, 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 don't do anything. Don't worry about it part of the you know part of the game. But then I looked at Don Baylor. And when Don Baylor looks at you, you, <laughs> you better get hit quickly and you better do <laughs> what's going through his head. So I actually had to go come into Benji Molina and I absolutely missed him. I think I threw him behind him. And then Mike Socio is just going absolutely berserk. And uh, so there's a lot of things going on the game. Then David X, I got that little flare over second base. Um, got the shutout. I remember Tim Salmon hit an absolute missile to end the game to Shinjo in center field, and he turned around, <laughs> game's over, and he threw the ball into the stands. <laughs> I was just like, what? I one hit, complete game shutout, and he came in. He's like, yeah, he had no idea. Maybe. And, and now t- a fan t-
3: has it. So you don't you don't have the ball now?
2: You have, you don't uh, have I didn't have that ball, but luckily you know, a ball or two prior to that was thrown out because I bounced it wow. in the dirt or whatever, so I grabbed that ball, but but yeah, so a uh, lot, lot of crazy things. That was really cool. Throw one hitter on Father's Day with my dad in the game.
3: And, and what's also cool is you did appear in an all-star game. And I know the all-star game has lost its luster, maybe a little bit with, you know, the internet and, and the saturation of interleague play and whatnot. But I looked, I went back, the all-star game in Philly. Uh, here's your face. This is a tough, you know, threesome. Sandy Olimar Jr., Cal Ripken Jr., and A-Rod, bing, bang, boom, three outs. And A-Rod, I think, pops up. So you got A Rod out, young A-rod first year, yep. but a guy 350 with 40 homers, 40 stolen bases. That's uh I mean, what do you remember about that inning? Nervous? Was it you know? That's a that's uh that's one that I hope you have a ball from that. There's got to oh, be absolutely. something on the mantle from that.
2: Yeah, I've got a lot of, I got a lot of all-star memorabilia from that. That was really cool. Um, extremely nervous. Um, didn't really know how to prepare for it because you know, not starting the game. So I never, I had never relieved before. So I didn't know to go down to the bullpen and maybe throw, you know, 30 pitches or whatever. And I was down there and Bobby Cox called down. He's like, we got to get that Cubs guy in. Cause he's the only one from the Cubs. So I got up, Todd Hundley was warming me up in the bullpen. And I think I literally went through my entire pregame 70 pitch routine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> to go out there. Right. And uh, yeah. So I went out, I think uh, Sandy Alomar popped up the first pitch. Then A-Rod popped up the second pitch, and then Ripken came up. But that was the year uh, Ripken had his nose broken during the team photo. Right. And I think my first or second pitch, it was at his head. So I'm thinking, oh, great. Now he just, just got his nose broken yesterday. Now he just wore one in the ear. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's 3-1. like, you know what? We're, we're ahead. I'm just going to throw one down and away. And he, and he hit an absolute rocket to shortstop and, and Ozzie Smith just picked it like it was nothing just like right. oh yeah this is easy whatever and I was like boom and it was over seven pitches and I went in and sat down and I just realized I'm like oh my god this is already over and it just felt like it began so
3: yeah unfortunately you know, you, I had to go back and do another one when you're mentioning Ozzie Smith uh, I think one of the things in today's game and I always talk about it is up the middle defense I understand offense you don't want to have a bunch of 220 hitters but Mark Belanger the former Oriole you know he, he's yeah. he's great because of defense right right you had Ordonez Alfonso up the middle as I'm thinking of you talking um and I mean Ordonez I saw him play I mean I, I remember being in the upper deck the last row in his first game th- seeing him throw from his knees and the one thing from that high up you see how athletic he was at that time compared to other shortstops that had played and uh you know Piazza uh, for all the criticisms he, he got I thought he did a good job calling a game blocking the plate Maybe he couldn't throw runners out. He uh, had shoulder issues maybe a little bit. But you were in New York. I think you had a pretty good uh, defense behind you. And that probably helped that defense that was behind you. Absolutely.
2: I mean, with my style. I think the year before, they may have set a record for fewest yeah. errors. In 99. Before yeah. I got there. And, sure. uh, yeah, no, that I mean, with my style of, you know, forcing contact, um, that's that was everything I always wanted. And, uh, and Ray or is just, you know, effortless when he was making those plays, too, and just unbelievably soft hands. And, and I love throwing a mic. Like you said, I, I had that split finger. So I was bouncing it in the dirt all the time, you know, so I had to have a hundred percent confidence that, that ball wasn't going to the backstop. And that, you know, especially with a runner on third or anything like that. And I always had that, you know, with Mike and, uh, always liked having Mike in tough situations, especially if like a three or four hitter comes up because that's what he always dealt with. So he's back there thinking, all right, what do I not, if I'm the hitter, what do I not want to see from, from Steve? And so that's what we would end up working with and to, to work out of the jams. And, um, yeah, there was Robin Ventura at third, you know, Todd Zeal was great at first base when, you know, the, when he was over there. So, you know, we, we always had a very solid defense in, in New York in my years there.
3: You look, uh, not many guys could say they're part of history. And and I was watching the, uh, the 30 for 30 about Sosa and McGuire. And I forgot that you were involved. You gave up McGuire's sixty second home run. How did you forget it? I, <laughs> I forgot <laughs> it was you. I remember, <laughs> well, I remembered, I remembered that, that he hit it off of the Cubs. Now remember, I'm a young guy. I'm a Mets fan, and all due respect, <laughs> I hated the Cubs. That's I hated nice. the Cubs, and we're rooting again At that time, I was rooting against you. Now I'm in the business, so I gotta like. What do you
2: go back to sixty nine? How young
3: are you? <laughs> you know, I hated the Cubs. The, the bleacher bum, Sammy. I mean, there was nothing because you know the Mets had not been in the playoffs in a while, and and obviously you guys had a great year. But you were part, you, you were part of that. And I remember, and I think I've I, as I was researching before you came on, I was reading. You were kind of annoyed about the. The fraternizing that happened after that home run, I was I understood it, but I even said to myself and I used to bother me going to Shea Stadium back in that time where fans would root for McGuire home run. I'm like, well, the Mets lose. You're going to be three games out or two games out or you miss. It was a weird that was weird. The Sosa McGuire thing, the fan reaction. It was obviously good for baseball, but from a competitive standpoint, I've never seen anything like that where it was more about the outcome of a couple of guys and the fans didn't care about the game so much. It kind of drove me crazy. I was wondering how it is for a competitor like you guys. We, yeah,
2: we absolutely felt that, um, especially, yeah, in St. Louis. I mean, obviously, Cubs-Cardinals was a very big rivalry. And, uh, yeah, there was – you could sense it going around the town, especially with, you know, Sammy when he had that unbelievable June where there were fans coming, and all they cared about was seeing a home run. They didn't care about the outcome of the game for either team, no matter what, what team or city we were in. And, uh, yeah, the Cubs were in playoff hunt, and uh, we were, I think, a game or two out. And, you know, I was trying to get my 15th win, I think, at that time as well. So uh, there was a lot of things going on. And uh, we I, we we had a long talk about it, you know, the pitchers and the catchers saying, you know, we, we don't want to be the guys to give this up. And uh, I remember other conversations like going, you know, if he hits it, you know, what are we going to do? And <laughs> basically everything that happened was opposite of what it was talked about. Prior. Right. There wasn't gonna be any handshaking. Right. You know, Mark, I remember Mark Grayson. I mean, you can see Scott, you can see that watch the replay, watch Scott Service's face when he does it, because he's just like, I really, really mad you didn't right want now. it. Yeah. Like, you know what though? This is still history. I better at least kinda stick my hand out there a little bit. But right. um, yeah, he hit that this was it sixty-one off of Mike Morgan the night before. And I was like, All right, here we go. It's on tomorrow. We need to win because we we're in the hunt. We need to not allow sixty-two. And uh, neither one of those things happened.
3: <laughs> well, it's interesting. You guys kind of rode that June. You were really not looked at as a team that was going to go anywhere. You had bad right. year the year before. And in the Mets were kind of like a team after they got Piazza that was expected to maybe do something. Well, did you guys ride the Sosa thing? Even though it was, about, it was him and it was about him. It mm-hmm. wasn't a team thing. But did you guys kind of ride that as a team? And then you get into game 163. And that was a, a from what I remember. That was a pretty raucous Wrigley crowd. Uh, that was more about the game at that point and the team. Yeah. And, and you almost yeah. you get into the seventh inning, good Giants lineup, almost you know win a ball game, almost pitch a no hitter again. Um, I mean, th- what about that night? That that's pretty cool, Wrigley Field playoff atmosphere and things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, what Sammy did in June was just I mean, he hit twenty one home runs in a month. You know, and, and that I mean, that just really that kind of brought us all back into the hunt. And uh, but we had a lot of guys that year that, that came up big, which is what's what has to happen, you know, to get to a playoff situation. Um, game one sixty three up until that point in my career, I had never experienced anything like that. Um, you know, I still always in first thing I think of is that giant Harry Carey balloon hanging out over the left field wall. You know, because that was the year he had, he had passed away. So uh, that's the first. I mean, but just the pure electricity of the entire city starting the night before, I remember driving to the stadium, you know, whatever it was, 2.30, 3 o'clock, and then it was Wrigleyville it was already, you know, two, 300,000 people out there, and it was just absolutely insane, and, uh, you know, I had no idea that I was throwing a no-hitter at that point, you know, um, I think it was Brett Maine guy I've known forever. He was a Cal state Fullerton and I was a Long Beach state guy. So it was a going back all the way to a college rival to have him come off the bench and, and break it up. But uh, yeah, I remember striking out Barry Bonds in the first inning and just the, the eruption from the crowd was just something that still makes my hair, you know, stand up on my arms when you think about it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So you come to the Mets. And as I was looking at the '01 one Mets, and looking at your season and the team, you guys kind of were parallel. You started mm-hmm. off, all right, you come in, they, were, they won a pennant the year before. Maybe there was a little bit of a hangover, you know, didn't get A-Rod, Hampton left. You know, you're, it's always tough to repeat. Mm-hmm. And you get off to a slow start. And here you are six or seven years in the big leagues, and you agreed to go down to the minor leagues, which you didn't have to do. Right? Uh, you had a contract. let uh, want to go there because then it, you, you had a great, I mean, one of your best stretches maybe of your career when you mm-hmm. came back. Walk me through that because that is not an easy decision for a veteran. It Again, it goes back. I have to give you credit. A lot of self-awareness, mm-hmm. uh, ego to the side. And, um, and it seemed to help you. And you worked with Harvey Dorfman, a sports psychologist. I know yes. you're on Twitter kind of dispelling this idea that teams don't address mental health. Not that, you know, there's different types of mental health, but uh, talk about that because I, I got to give you a ton of credit that's not easy when you're six or seven years in the big leagues going back to Norfolk.
2: Yeah, it was tough. I mean, the the simple answer of it was I was getting hit like I'd never been hit in my entire career and couldn't figure out why. You know, the long story of it was was uh, Steve Phillips tried to get me in New York in 2000. And I give him a lot of credit for being one of the few GMs that was truly honest with us that entire offseason season. And he just wasn't able to make it work. So when 2001 came, I was free agent again. You know, he was one of the first or second calls. Boom. And we got a deal done really quickly. And I had always wanted to play in New York. I just, I just felt like I wanted to see if I could handle that pressure of having to perform at your best every five days and have an opportunity to win every year. And I think that my first game was Montreal. <laughs> I think I gave up seven earned on like three homers or something like that in like three innings. And I remember Bobby was going to take me out of the game. I said, Oh, hell no. He's like, I've only gone three or four innings, whatever I'm going, I'm at least going to get deep in the game for you here first game of the year. And I went back out the next inning. and I think gave up three more. So right away, 10 earnings in the first game of the year, my second game wasn't any better. And uh, even my third or fourth or whatever, but the media was what I was not prepared for in New York and I didn't have any answers and when you don't have answers, this gets even worse. So, um, talked with Robbie Alomar a little bit. He was under the impression and had strong feelings that I was tipping some pitches. So we were looking at that a little bit and pretty sure he was hundred percent. Right. And, uh, that and just trying to get my hair cleared so when they, they talked about going down to the minor leagues you know I, I consider it you know bobby jones had done it a couple of years prior and it worked well for him so they had a little bit of precedent on their side right um, right but like you said i could say no so i told him look you know i'm not going to go down for more than 20 days i'm coming back within 19 days because that way it was a service time issue and all that sure, type of stuff. sure um, and i hadn't gotten to my 10 years yet you know yada yada but, and that's uh, a big
3: deal i think fans of the you get to 10 years that's a, a nice deal. pension and it's and a, and as you get to the end of your career you may not get to 10 years and they know it so that's there's a big a, yeah, deal there's a, there's a lot of guys and it's it's kind
2: of a badge of honor to get that 10-year mark yep i can't even imagine what it's like years before we get to get to 20. but wow. yeah, so i went down went down to norfolk and uh started working with harvey dorfman um i had read parts of his book the year prior when i was in Tampa. But uh, actually get to sit down face-to-face with him multiple times, and uh, it all came, kind of goes back to that execution thing we talked about with Greg Maddox years before. But uh, reading the book, working with Harvey, it just kind of really seemed to click in my head a little bit more. And, uh, yeah, they ended up throwing that no-hitter no, no hitter down there and uh I'm not even walking off the field yet and the cell phone is one of the PR guys is like oh I got Jay Horowitz on the phone with you (laughs) with all the reporters from New York and I was like oh I thought I was down here to not talk to reporters. Yeah you
3: want to get away from those guys.
2: I'm trying to get away from clear my head and they're like it's too late they just put it on the big board at Shea that you just threw a no-hitter so you know the whole crowd at Shea is going nuts for you and I'm like really? They're going nuts. They're probably like, Oh God, that means he's going to come back.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. But it, it, from that point on um, it really turned my entire year around. And I think probably the next four, four years
3: in New York as well. Yeah. You were nine and three, two, seven, four whip under one, really good numbers. And you guys who really muddled through most of the season go on like this NBA team run, play almost 800 ball, obviously nine eleven and the tragedy that happened yep. was in between but you look at it, you lost a couple of games to the Braves in the ninth inning, uh, which you should have won. Uh, yeah. Tough losses. You lost one in there to Atlanta. Uh, close game, lost one. You could easily have won like 19 out of 21. I mean, that's a crazy, crazy stretch. Yeah. And the Braves were vulnerable. And uh, it's one of those near misses. I mean, uh, is that one of the obviously the nine eleven? and you probably have talked about it ad nauseum adds a certain other components of that season is that one of the seasons you remember the most because of that I mean there's so many different things that go on in your career but I got to think that's wild yeah and you mirrored the team, and, you mirror and, the team. And, and just the
2: the final commitment I guess is the only way to really say it in my head even though I felt like I'd been doing it before of basically as a mantra of selection of pitch location of pitch execution it's the only three things that I focused on from that point on the rest of my career. And as long as I was able to execute, it didn't matter, you know, what pitch it was going to be. And Greg Maddox fig- obviously figured that out at a very young age and you see what it did for him. Uh, it, it just took me more years to, to I guess believe in it a hundred percent with full trust. And uh, yeah, somebody to think about what, if I had only been doing this for five or six years prior, you know, make it, try to make it that simple. Maybe I never worked that so slow because, you know, things are just different. There's a lot of what ifs, but, uh, you know, getting down to that simple mantra, I think really it just completely changed my career.
3: What you probably know is Mets fans kind of latch themselves on to the, you know, almost teams. And there's some almost beloved almost teams, not just 69, not just 86, the 99 team, the 2015 almost a championship team you played for one in two thousand and six, which Gary Cohen has called it was almost like the summer of Mets love. Nothing went wrong a lot went wrong there was a lot of challenges, but everything turned up roses until obviously game seven uh, and you won fifteen games that year um, that was a that was a fun team I mean is that the best team you were on it was a most really unique group of guys. What do you remember about that group because that was a, an interesting group of guys and Uh, You didn't go into that season with the media predicting that you'd be a 97 win team. Uh, And you turned out to be the best team in the national league, maybe in all of baseball at one point.
2: I I mean, I, I could, I'm sure you could sit down and do stats for stats or whatever and say, yeah, we were probably the best team by far and away the best team I'd ever been part of. Um, Yeah. I think pre, you know, pre-season, you know, Carlos Delgado, I think a lot of media was down on him. Like he's over the hill. I obviously can't expect, Carlos Beltran to do what he did all year I mean it was just absolutely unbelievable to watch all season long and uh, myself you know I was coming off the back surgery you know the, the you know the prior year so um I was trying to go out and, and prove that I was still you know could, could pitch and do what I needed to do and uh, my I know my ERA that year was a lot higher and I got a lot of grief for having run support but I thought that yes I remember the, that I thought that's what the offense was supposed to do was give you run support. So I don't know why I was getting in trouble for getting run support. <laughs> I know I didn't get any a couple of years prior and I won 16 that year. You don't, don't remember. They don't, that. they don't care.
3: They don't care. They only don't remember care. the. No, they don't but, care. Nothing's changed. Steve, nothing's changed since you're, since you're out of here 16, 17 <laughs> years ago. It's just a different, it's a different variation of the same thing. The faces are different. The narratives are pretty much the same, but yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah, no, that was you uh, even you pitched the clincher, uh, and that's gotta be a memorable night. And you pitched yes. really well. And I know the Marlins were uh basically rebuilding, but looking at that Marlins team, Cabrera and Ugla, they had some good, you know, Hanley Ramirez. That was a pesky team. And that was a team that if they had invested in probably would have been really good. Yeah. That was not a slouch, that was a bad Cab- team that was not a bad slouch team. That was Cabrera a Cabrera is
2: still in the top five guys I've ever faced. I wow. mean to get out and they're for me they're all right Anders. you know uh, uh Maglio Ordonez was on that list Edgardo Fonzi's on that list and didn't matter what I tried to do those those guys just absolutely crushed me all the time Derek Lee God but um yeah I mean I get a lot of texts and stuff on social media whenever SNY plays that game you know from a lot of guys from Mets fantasy camp that I do every year they're like yeah hey, you're you're your clincher game's on. And of course, if I'm in San Diego, I can't watch it because it's dope <laughs> out here. But uh, you know, you can jump on and stream it. So uh, I try to do that when it when it comes on. Because my wife has never seen me pitch. So wow. So, yeah. So I try to put something on and hey, see, see, look, I was,
3: I was okay. You actually played. You could tell her I really played baseball. It's not, it's not a fake profile. I played baseball. <laughs> she knows the post baseball playing career yeah. tracks. So she, just, and the she whole goes, oh, "What you got? A
2: podcast or are you doing? A show? Oh, what's all these? You keep getting all these letters all the time." Like, fan Listen,
1: like, Why I,
3: fans love this? and you're at fantasy camp it does you you pitched a while for the Mets but there's guys who pitch one two years for the Mets the one thing I could say there's a lot of criticisms about the Mets fan base and you know I was one of them growing up but they will embrace you for things that you achieved even in environments like 2003 where you didn't win many games mm-hmm. they will embrace you and I think that 016 goes down and and look I, and I'm curious your thoughts because to me, it was unfair that the Beltron at bat he gets criticized. you were out in the bullpen, I believe. Yeah. So you have maybe some vantage point. That at bat, in my opinion, gets lost when Beltron takes strike one. Wayne Wright's on the rope, space is loaded. It's an easy second guess for me sitting on the couch, but right. you I think you're more aggressive in that spot. And when he took that strike one, it was gonna be a much harder at bat after that because now you're in his kitchen. You're in right. his and that uh, was and that's a whole fame curveball. Yeah, I mean- that's a Hall yeah. of Fame curveball. There's nothing he can do. Hall of Fame curveball. And you said it right. He's going
2: to go to the Hall of Fame. Except, right. right. you know, I mean, uh, he, he, he what is he, 41? <laughs> He's still yeah. came, what, third yeah. in the league in innings last year or whatever? I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's – I mean, you can break down a game at any point. It could have been something that happened in the third inning where maybe we should have scored three runs and we didn't. I mean, there's so many ways to look at it. Um, you know, without Andy Chavez it, – it, that last inning doesn't probably matter either. So making that play, I mean,
3: so many that's things. That's true. Yeah, so many and, uh, and that yeah. was hit by another guy that may be a Hall of Famer, Scott Rowland. There's another guy. You could just mentioned be. earlier. It could yeah. be another guy. Hey, you uh, you hit a couple home runs in your career, huh? Three home runs? I, I didn't hit realize. three. I hit four if you count spring training. <laughs> you count spring training. I don't know. So do you remember? Well, I mean, I, don't, I didn't see who they were off. Do you remember who they were off? I know one was with the Mets. Do you remember who you hit them yeah, off? Yeah, that's
2: the one I don't remember. Um, yeah, my first one was off of Kurt Schilling. And then I hit another one off of John Thompson. And then yeah, the third one was, I know it was against Cincinnati. I think it was a young rookie kid. So that's why I'm having trouble remembering. But that was the only one I knew when I hit it was gonna was actually a home run. So the first two I thought were gonna be like doubles off the wall. So I was running real hard, put my head down. Um, The third one I knew when I hit that I'm like, okay, that's a homer. I'm gonna actually watch it a little bit and enjoy
3: it. So who was that? Did you have a favorite manager you played for? You know, you played for, you know, Willie, you played for Bobby V. You played for yeah, Jimmy I mean, I
2: played for in New York was great. Um, I'm always going to be a Bobby V fan. Just uh, we just we just clicked and connected for some reason. Uh, Love Jim Riggleman in, in uh, Chicago. Um, God. I mean, it's tough. You know, you, it's you, tough.
3: You played a yeah. long time you played a long get, time yeah, to like narrow that.
2: down to one guy. It's, it's really tough. It's like people go, Oh, who was your favorite catcher or your favorite closer? Nah, it's it's like, tough. Yep. you look at the list. I'm like, God,
3: 16 years. I could probably name 45 catchers. You know, That's that's right. Are you keeping up a couple more before I let you go? Are you keeping up at all with what's going on with the labor situation? Is there any, any part of you that looks at it and says it's, you know, even though it's a lockout, not a strike, uh, right. that this reminds you a little bit of 94 because it's uh, I don't want to say it's getting well. It's getting contentious, but there's some mm-hmm. uh, there's some red zone stuff that's bringing back some memories. I'm sure a little bit, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't follow it real close. Um, yeah, '94 strike. That was you know my rookie year, and ever since that year, I was always involved uh, with the union as a either player rep or assistant player rep for every team after that. So uh, I see a lot of similarities. Uh, I know talking to some people, you know, maybe a month ago when it first started that. My concern was that these the players of now have never been through a lockout and or strike, so my concern was how well they're going to stick together. Um, from what I've seen so far, it looks like they're going to stick together really well. Um, yeah, but you know, this is just comes down to standard operating procedure. You know, when a CBA comes out, and uh, you know, it sounds like they've been talking a lot this week, which is which is good. Um, and uh, I don't know the exact numbers anymore like I used to, but I just remember, right. you know, for 120 years, the players got like, I think it was like 56 or 57% of all revenue. And that number has right. dropped significantly the past three or four years.
3: And wow. Was, I did yeah. not. And that, and and that, you know, if you look at other leagues, that's kind of where you're going. The players on right. the product. And, and, yeah. and,
2: and it was weird. You could literally graph it and it was a perfect straight number. The, the salaries joined along with the you know, TV deals. On, it was always 56, mm. 57%. So um, that's probably a big portion of it. Um, You know, you see a lot of stuff on social media about the minor league stuff. Um, I agree with a lot of it, but unfortunately they're not represented by the union. So, uh, you know, the the players, the major league players, unfortunately can't really do anything about that. Um, I think something will get done. It's in the best interest of the game. We will, everybody knows that, uh, especially after the COVID years and all that fans are anxious to get back and uh, they'll get something done. I, I would be surprised if, if they miss games, I think they'll just be a shortened spring training, which I think is fine for most of most
3: of right. um, everyone, except for maybe some pitchers, but three weeks for pitchers as a former pitcher, you need three weeks, maybe two weeks for hitters. You think you yeah, get the season the, going? You know,
2: hopefully the guys are still working out, being ready. Yep. Um, you know, maybe you start the season where, you know, guys are only going three or four innings to start. And you expand the pitching rosters again. You know, they've done that before. So, sure. um, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen. You know, you, Maybe squeeze in some double hitters if you if you have to make up some stuff. But you know they'll get things worked out. And uh, you know I wish they weren't going to do the DH. I hope they get rid of that runner. Oh, to I was gonna.
3: Game. You don't. So you're not a DH guy because you. Oh, I mean, no. you you, were, you could hit. You could hit. But I now with
2: of, I put a lot of work in and I took a lot of pride in being at the very least being able to bunt. Well,
3: I mean, that's I, ridiculous, but, Steve. They can't like the bunting effort I've seen on certain guys. You could tell they don't want to do it. They don't yep. practice it. And again, I don't want to. I'm not one of these guys that sits on a couch because I, I I played sandlot ball. I never played at your level, but you as a pro have to have more pride than that. And it's and, and it helps you as a pitcher right. maybe get a run. And well, I can't it, think it, of
2: anything more humiliating as a pitcher being lifted for a pinch hitter, so that guy can go up and bunt for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, now now I know. Nothing else. You have you have four days in between starts. You know. Well, maybe, maybe you could bunt one day. Recoveries. You have two days to go and. 30 balls a day, every day for an entire season.
3: Sure. It's not hard. Maybe, maybe you could. Now uh, the Mets are embracing history under their new ownership. There's going to be old timers day. Will we see Steve Traxlet at old timers day? Is that, is that you will see? Yes. It is just another reminder of a long list of
2: reminders I've had that I am officially getting old.
3: Well, Mets (laughs) fantasy camp. Look, I've played, look, I played Mets fantasy camp in 2007 and I went one for 15 and I think I had a bruise for a month on my thumb because I hadn't had to swung a wood bat for 10 years. So I can tell you, um, Fantasy Camp's fun. When you play the pros at Fantasy Camp, I'm a lefty. I faced Randy Neiman. You might remember Randy oh, Neiman. Oh, yeah. I, Randy, Randy Neiman I, I, threw a fastball, and I sliced a line drive to left field, and it went foul. And it was a nice hit. And if I had gotten a real hit, that would have been a he – got, he got ticked. And he I mean, he literally blew me away on the next pitch. I'm like, you know, Randy Neiman at that point was probably out of baseball 15, 20 years. And he still threw the gas. So I think do you ever kind of get any wise guy at fantasy camp where you got to kind of like, hey, I could still, you know, yeah, I could still I could still still
2: bring it a little bit. You know, they're they're all wise until they get in the box. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) You know, they'll, they'll talk their smack. And unfortunately, they do it like the first day of camp. By the third day of camp, they're so sore and beat up. They don't really talk much anymore. So, And then by the time they do get into the pro game, they're just kind of like, well, one, I'm out there. I'm like, please, God, don't hit somebody. You know, because I know right. I've seen you guys not be able to move all week, so you're not getting out oh, of the
4: way. That's true. <laughs> I did, hit, I did true. hit
2: a guy my first year. <laughs> I felt horrible. He was actually a dentist. I'm like, oh, my God, I just might have, like, ended your dental career. I ended your dental your career. There you yeah. go. Well, yeah, they, don't, they don't talk too much by the third or fourth day.
3: No, they don't. It's a fun experience. And I'll tell you what, the competition is a lot better than people think. And yes. uh, if you haven't picked up, picked up a bat in a long time, work out, get the Achilles stretched. The first thing you'll see is a lot of Achilles injuries.
2: Legs. Um, yeah, we had a broken leg legs. this year.
3: Yeah, you gotta, you gotta uh you 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 gotta do that. Now, I'm gonna leave on this note. You're a you're a you're you're a self-proclaimed on Twitter wine connoisseur. Do you have a wine uh, you know you know tip uh, uh what's your favorite and i believe you've been in the restaurant business so give us a little idea of what you've been doing post baseball to enjoy life as a retired yeah, I am a
2: self-proclaimed cork dork yeah cork wine dork. snob whatever you want to call it yeah i uh got myself some certificate shortly after i got done playing so uh i thought about doing some importing uh french wines and such but unfortunately i live in california and Napa and Paso Robles and Oregon and Washington are all way too close for anybody to really care about French wines
5: at the <laughs> level that it would
2: make it worthwhile. Um, so I, I do some collecting. I well, I was trying to do a lot of travel, you know, as much as I could to Europe or wherever. To I love I love Napa, and besides the wine, the food is just amazing. Um, yeah, but I have a small three thousand bottle collection which was never supposed to get over probably 1,200. So that became a problem. Um, There you go. I started to get into cooking and all that. But yeah, now I'm raising kids. Got a two and a half year old and a a nine month old. So starting all over. Uh, Will we
3: have the next Steve Traxel out of the, out of your, ki- uh, your family over there? You know, the next if, if they have
2: softball players in the big leagues, maybe. Yeah. Uh, all <laughs> girls, so
3: you never know. Look, by the time they get to be 18, 19, 20, the world's a changing, right? You never, never know. know. So.
2: Yeah. The two and a half year old so far is left-handed. So you, you want oh,
3: look at that. A lefty on that. Have, you know? uh,
2: have to have Johnny Franco work with her for a little you bit. You got to
3: get lighter to teach her that you got to get lighter to teach her the cutter over there uh, and everything. I, you know, I, I, was you, talking,
2: I asked him about it. He, yeah he, it was natural he didn't know how he did it
3: yeah i'll tell you that's gonna get competitive old-timers day i was talking to one of the uh the old-timers recently and he said i could i could guarantee you lighter's uh, gonna get competitive and start throwing those cutters and uh, i'm 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 guessing you're gonna have some uh some spirited talk uh, at this thing huh? oh
2: absolutely yeah well have, everything al throws cuts so even if it's not <laughs> a cutter it's still cutting it's just it's a, still an cutting. illusion it's unbelievable. But, uh, uh, yeah, go. it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, got, what, TC is going to or manage and Bobby V is going to manage, I think. So uh, 40, 45 guys. Um, I just hope we have enough time to play the game. I, you know, I was joking. If I, if I had to start the game, we'd only get one inning in. <laughs> and you're
3: going to see City Field, and you're going to be like, why couldn't this have existed when I played, huh? That's yeah, what I'm
2: I, I this... just
3: missed Although it. Although Shea was a good pitcher's ballpark, too. The win, especially ballpark. in April and May the wind would be really tough to get anything out. It's September too. House. Yeah. September nice too. But yeah, I just mm-hmm.
2: missed City Field, just missed the new New York. Uh, there's, yeah. There's a few places I just missed, but uh, yeah, this are. would be nice to get, put this one in feather in my cap to say, yeah, I finally pitched at City Field.
3: You were great. You spent a lot of time tonight. Thank you so much. Tell your wife, you are famous. There are people that want to hear about your baseball career. All right. I'm, now. Now I'm, I'm going to send man. you, we'll send you the, the replay of this after. Steve, be well, and uh, let's catch up and do it again, my friend. That's Good luck great. at old Thanks, timers. Mike. Day. Appreciate it. And that's Steve Traxel, former Mets pitcher, sixteen years in the big leagues, part of the Mets from 2001 to 2006, part of the NL East champion Mets in 2006. All right, let's take a quick break. Wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Being in the big leagues is hard work. What is one of the fun aspects of the job? Jay Horwitz, longtime PR director for the Mets. Gave us some insight.
6: Like a, a guy like Daryl Boston, team which I've ever worked with, he's a he's a coach now with the White Sox. And like in the early '90s, we had a kangaroo court in the locker room. My gosh, he did he used to put on these long robes and, and long b- 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 hair and robes, and he always included me. You know, he managed to find me for something to make sure I was part of the group. We every three or four weeks we'd have these court sessions. The locker room was shut down, and Dow would be presiding. He would buy me for getting so many guys for interviews for, for uh, you know, he would include things like, um, they would buy me, uh, you know, when Brett Dehaverhand was on the team, they, they, we had a big one year with San Francisco, everybody had a shave your head, uh, you know, and, and we, we couldn't get a hair, we had to shave your head, uh, you know, to have team unity, he included me in that kind of a thing. So guys like that made me feel part of the group and, and uh, that was the fun part of the job.
3: Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Really enjoyed talking and catching up with Steve Tracks. I thought we had a good casual conversation. As, uh, as the years have gone on and these alumni segments have evolved, I've really tried to change my style. I used to do it very biographically, you know, start with their young years and go all the way up, but now I kind of am trying to figure out a way to blend what they did at different times, keep it somewhat chronological, and Try to mix in their thoughts about today's game. And I hate to always go with analytics and this because everybody says, oh, man, am out of analytics. What would you do today? But it's interesting to see how these guys would incorporate things that they did in their playing careers with all the information and the kind of game that is out there today. And I don't, don't want to rag on the game because I still love the game. But uh, as we talked about in the open, there's a lot of problems here. And I think uh, even I can't believe how competition – Kevin Kernan, our good friend Kevin Kernan, ball nine, has talked about it for a long time, even back to his New York Post days, that it's a problem right now. The game is broken. Competition is broke, and I think it's not just analytically driven front offices. I think they're one symptom. I think that the mindset of the owners that own these teams and the arrogance of how they think that the customers will always come back – I think that's the dangerous part, and I think that's the part that at some point pain has to happen. Sometimes things have to collapse before they get better. And I'm afraid that we're at that point with baseball. We may have to have a long lockout. We may have to have a long scenario where we lose significant time. And it really seems like the owners don't care because and I'm all for fourteen team playoffs if they get that that fourteen team playoffs with that wild card playing and everything. The revenue they get from that short span of time, and like Joe said, they don't have to pay the players, the players' salaries are done already, Uh, means a lot more than 30 or 40 games in April and May in, in bad weather, potentially, in certain cities. And early season baseball that's competing with still the NBA, college basketball, to a certain degree, college basketball. College basketball's done April 1st, NFL draft. And look, the NFL, which is immensely popular and is more and more because of the kind of game it is once a week, how it fits our culture and society. Like Joe said, I mean, just go back and listen. I keep saying it, but it's really important. If you listen to that podcast from last week, there's so much there that has just transpired in just a short span of time. The NFL is saying, thank you, baseball. You just put our draft front and center. And there are certain cities like Pittsburgh, baseball cities, cities down in Florida, they're already talking about their team's 2022, 2023 season in the NFL. I told you guys that. I have I have friends outside of New York, and they say it starts the day after the Super Bowl. Just like the day after the World Series, you and I are here on this show starting to talk about what the Mets can do. We grew up with that culture. A lot of the places didn't. And this kind of stuff doesn't help. So hope you enjoyed Steve Traxel. I wish I came to you with better news about the lockout. What's next? Look, I'm going to come to you every week. I'm going to get creative. We have plenty to talk about. You guys have been kind enough, some of you, to send me some emails and say, hey, could you talk about this? Could you talk about that? And I think I'm going to do that. I'm definitely going to do that. So uh, sit back, get your popcorn, because you need something to make you feel good. And let's watch the next 48 hours. Let's see what happens after Monday. I think we're going to hear my opinion that the the season is delayed. And uh, I think this week's going to be a rough week for the baseball fan, because I think they're going to realize that we got to buckle up and this lockout which is in nearly 90 days in is is in, is going to be going on for the long haul and that stinks the timing could not be worse especially for this program and for all the things that we want to talk about in the and the season and i talk about thunderbolts truly this is the first thunderbolt for the New York Mets and Buck Showalter because now you're going to have to prepare for a season that is going to be chaotic at the beginning because you still don't have a full roster. You're not going to have a full spring training. And everybody's clock's going to be off because it's quite possible you're going to be doing spring training in late March into April in Florida. Think about that. But the good news is, if there is any, you got one of the more prepared, detail-oriented managers, not only in this game, but maybe in the last 25, 30 years, maybe ever, at the helm. So that makes you feel a lot better. All right, want to thank Steve Traxel for joining me on today's program. Of course, you could check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at com. No G, Mike Silva at podcast.com. I want to also thank our good friends at Fansided and the good folks over at risingapple.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another broadcast pretty soon. Till then, uh, take care, everybody.